Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 11. This week, we talk Azure with Eric D. Boyd from ResponsiveX, seven things the Service Pro 3 can do better than your laptop, observable objects supporting JavaScript, and home automation. Hello, this is Jason Young here for another week of the MS Dev Show. So I guess, first of all, I want to apologize for the horrible, horrible audio last week. That was, uh, that was really terrible. And, uh, I got to apologize to Carl. It was, uh, about, uh, I don't know, two minutes into it. He sent me a message saying, Hey, your audio sounds terrible. And I said, it sounded fine to me and the recording, it, it turned it out that it, it turned out that it was really bad. So I think it was a, a Skype issue, but it's all good this week. So this week should be much better. So speaking Yay. of that, yep, definitely. So, uh, Carl, I have a beard joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I was laughing about before the, the show here. So, uh, it's just, it's just a one liner. So I didn't like your beard at first, but it grows on you. Yes, it does. <laughs> that, that was the best I could find. There are, there are no, there are no good beard jokes out there. There's some, uh, there's some, some really Chuck, lame ones. Yeah. There's some like Chuck Norris beard jokes, but I don't think that was in the spirit of the beard. So, no. and then this week we have, uh, Eric Boyd with us. Hello, Eric. Hey guys. How are you? Good, good. So he is the founder of responsive X and he's also an Azure MVP. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Yep. Um, so let's just get into the news. We got some interesting things to, uh, to talk about this week, and then we're going to be talking to Eric about some Azure topics, but, uh, just jump in anytime, Eric. So first thing I want to talk about this week, as far as news. So I wrote a blog post, uh, was, uh yesterday, actually the it's called, it's titled the, uh, the, the seven things that the surface pro, you know, I got a new surface pro three and like we talked about that, um, on a previous episode. But seven things the Surface Pro 3 can do better than your laptop. And, uh, you know, I haven't had a Surface Pro before this. So so the the whole concept is is new to me. I've had the Surface 2 and I also had a, a Surface RT. But this whole, you know, having a, a basically a full PC in this form factor with the kickstand and the keyboard and everything, this, this was completely new to me. So I wanted to I wanted to run through this list. This this uh, post is just taken off. Um, it's as of right now, it's like it's the number one spot on the surface subreddit out on uh, Reddit and it's been that way all day. So I've got, I've been watching the, the live analytics and at no point today has there been less than 10 people active on the site. Sometimes uh, there were as many as 20 or 30 people active on the site. So that was pretty neat. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, but I was just going to run through this list here. Cause I, I just wanted to talk about some of the, the cool things that I found with this device. So the first one was using uh, basically scanning and annotating documents. So, you know, this, this happens to me where I get some kind of sheet of paper, or, you know, you go to an, an event or you go to some kind of meeting and there's a handout. And of course, you know, I'm trying to go paperless and somebody hands me a sheet of paper. So what I end up doing is, uh, or what you can do with this device, you can either take a picture with the device. Um, and actually I, I tried it. It works okay. But what's even better is there's this app called the office lens app. And, uh, so you can get this for windows phone. And then Eric, you had mentioned this is for you. It's in the OneNote app on iOS as well, right? Yeah. So you can now do this with OneNote, and it'll do things. It'll do the whole whiteboard document right. scan thing. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So what, what you do is you pick either document whiteboard or photo, I think is the other option and what yep. you can do with this. So let's say you, and I, and I have a picture of this in my blog, but what I did, I just grabbed a, a sheet of scratch paper and it was actually a, a page from the, the, uh, 
Palm OS or the uh, web OS manual. So that was kind of a throwback. But I, I just sat that down on my desk. I picked the document mode with the office lens, took a picture of it. It all, does automatic edge detection. So you don't have to like cut out the picture. And then if it if it's, you know, pure black and white, what it'll do is it'll actually turn the white into white. Um, so it's not grayscale anymore. And then um, you you hit save on the on the phone. And what ends up happening is that document goes into OneNote. And then since OneNote automatically synchronizes between all your devices, I was able to jump over on the Surface Pro 3. There was the document. And then with the pen, I was able to draw on that thing. So that was pretty slick because, you know, whenever you get that handout I talked about earlier, you grab a picture of, of each page in there and then you can sit there and take notes on top of that. And then you'll have that and you don't have to worry about throwing that in your bag and losing it and getting it all crumpled up, all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was kind of uh, cool. Uh, number two here, uh, using the the on-screen keyboard in a recline position. I actually have found a couple of people online that, you know, are going to use this thing primarily as a tablet and they, they don't want to use it as a PC. And I've always been saying, you know, at the if you if you look at the low end price of one of these, you can get one for $7.99. That starts to compete with the high-end iPad. And, you know, this is a real PC. So what you can do is, you know, buy this as a tablet and then just, you know, skip the keyboard if you really don't need to, to type anything, if you're primarily going to use it as a consumption device. Well, thanks to the new, you know, lower angle on this thing, since the angle, the, the kickstand can go to pretty much any angle, you can put this almost flat on a table uh, or the desk in front of you. And you can put it at an ideal angle where you can sit there and actually type on the screen. And I've done this a couple times. I've actually chatted with Carl over Skype and it, it actually works pretty well. It works better than the, than you would think it would work. So it would definitely work in a pinch. Now I, I use my surface RT in my lap on my lazy boy chair mm-hmm. and I, I use type on the screen and it's actually pretty decent. I agree with you. And one of the things that I was really excited to see was uh, how this hinge worked. And it, it looks like it, you know, you know, gets to any position and stays right where you set that. Oh yeah. There, so, there's a, there's a ton of friction. So, so what ends up happening whenever you pull out the kickstand, it kind of snaps out and then, uh, you know, so it, it's not every angle, but it, it skips all the angles that, you know, would, if you sat it down with it at, at, you know, such a steep angle, it would just fall over. So it makes sense where it pops out and then you can adjust it to pretty much any angle you can get it. So it's probably, you know, 15 degrees off of your desk, you know, get it down that flat. If you put it flat on a desk, you know, you'd be, you'd sort of have to hover over it to get a good view and use the the keyboard. So getting that like 15 degree angle is about perfect. Um, so up next and, and Eric, you said you've done this one, uh, using the pen as a whiteboard in a presentation. Um, yeah, that works, works just really well to just be able to draw or annotate something. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially when you're talking about kind of architecture sort of things and you want to draw, draw boxes and arrows and all that sort of stuff. So it works really well for that. Yeah. I've been in a lot of presentations where the the presenter, you know, they're talking about something and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're waving their arms around trying to sort of draw something in the air. And then they start searching the room for the markers and the whiteboard and either they, you know, they walk up to the, to the whiteboard and they draw something and it's, you know, it's so bad that you can't really see it, you know, cause it's just a, not a good marker or whatever. Or they just sort of give up and and move on. So this thing, I mean, you already have it hooked up to a projector. You're already showing code or your PowerPoint or whatever. The fact that you can just, uh, you know, flip into OneNote or even paint and just start writing on the screen, I think is pretty slick because everybody in the room will be able to see it. Um, number four, uh, keeping your lap cool. So this this was one, this was just sort of an unexpected uh, 
uh, consequence that I found in, uh, using this thing. So whenever you have it on your lap, I mean, I, I know people have had concerns about lapability that honestly hasn't been an issue for me. Uh, I know on the, on like the first gen of this device, the kickstand was at a, you know, a pretty tall angle. So it was, uh, um, it would, it could tip over pretty easily. And the, the keyboard was sort of at a bad angle, but this one I, I think is, is completely lappable. And because all of the, you know, the processor and the batteries and the fans and everything are all up in the unit that actually, you know, sort of sits, um, you know, upright on your lap, you don't get any of that heat. Um, so that that's huge because in the summer, I don't know if you've ever done this, but I'll, I'll be sitting there, you know, working on a laptop. All of a sudden I realize that I'm just like sweating bullets, you know, writing some code. And it's not because the room is particularly warm. It might be, you know, perfectly comfortable, but you put that, you know, on your, on your lap and you're just generating so much heat and it's just raising like your core temperature while you're using it. So do you find that this, so I have a surface pro, but I don't have a surface pro three. Do you find that this device still gets pretty warm? Like the surface pro? It does. It, it does get warm. I, I don't know how to compare it to the Surface Pro because I never had that one specifically. It obviously gets a lot warmer than the than the ARM devices. Um, I also noticed that it's pretty, um, you know, it, it it its behavior change, changes dramatically whether or not it's plugged in. So while it's sitting here on my desk and it's plugged in, you know, it's it's and it's also sitting there idle. That's when it it takes its chance to actually run like you know virus scan, update indexes, things like that. So it, it does end up usually the, the CPU will fire up quite a bit and it'll actually run warmer when I'm not using it and when it's plugged in. And then whenever I go, whenever I actually take it off the charger, the CPU calms back down. And there was a setting I found as well because um, the indexer, I noticed the search indexer was running occasionally. Like if it's idle, but on battery, the search indexer was still running. So what I did, I found there's a there's actually a local policy on the computer where you can change that, where you can tell it to disable that. So I think there's, you know, there's some potential for going through some of the settings on here and optimizing that a little bit better. But basically, when it's on battery, you want it doing nothing other than your task at hand. And right. If, and if you're doing that, if you're watching like a video or something like that, you're really not, you know, stressing the CPU because there's you know dedicated video decoding and those types of things. So it will run very cool if you're doing those. If you are doing some you know, visual studio work and you're like constantly compiling and stressing it, um, it, it can get pretty warm and it's sort of in the, the, the upper right corner. You can feel it on the back. The thing is like you, you never, it, it doesn't, it never affects you because the heat is never near you. So it really hasn't been an issue. So your number five on, on this list really caught my attention. Yeah. So this one, um, and people had a ton of problems with this. I, I think it was just poor wording on my poor part and I haven't attempted to fix it at all. So here was the point that I was trying to make. So I, I typically play older games and the reason that I usually are not, I'm not usually not playing the latest games is if I ever get together with friends and, and we want to have like a land party or let's say I want to play with, uh, you know, my kids, um, with an online game or something like that, you, you all, your games, you sort of always have to, um, play to the lowest common denominator, you know, not everybody can run like, you know, the, the game that requires the highest end hardware. So I, I like to play some of these older games like age of empires Two HD is a really good one. You can get that one through steam. And that is a super fun game. Um, there's a couple other games I play, but this was one of the big ones. And I was just sitting there one night and I'm like, yeah, I wonder, wonder what that would look like on here. Cause it has a super high res screen. So I loaded it up and it, it runs great. And the pen actually makes a great input for these sort of top-down strategy games 
Cause you can pick individual units. You can, nice. yeah, you can, you can hold down the one button on the pen, which is the right click. And then you can, um, you know, drag a square and it, you know, it does like the lasso action around like a whole group of units and then you can tell them where to go. And so it actually works really good for like age of empires too. that kind of game. There are probably some clones like on the iPad. I've never found anything that was, you know, as immersive and as deep as, as age of empires two. And even if, even if a game like this was ported to iPad, it's never going to be the same because an iPad has a, a capacitive screen and you can buy, you know, quote unquote pens or styluses for them, but they have, they just have like a rubber end and they're not very accurate. This pen, even if you have four units that are all sort of in right in the same spot, you get pixel perfect accuracy whenever you're using that thing. So that was the point that I was trying to make is you get a, a laptop could play that game, but it's not going to play it the way an iPad plays it. And that's, that's why I made the comparison to an iPad. I actually wasn't, it, it still was, I was still trying to compare it to a laptop, but I, in the context of like, Hey, here are some of the, you know, there's, there's a way of playing things on an iPad. And that was the point I was trying to make. So that's quite literally like one of, like one of my favorite games ever. Is AOE oh, that's cool. yeah. So that's why that one caught my attention uh, so much. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it works great on there. The The biggest challenge I have, and I, I think I just need to practice a little bit more is the, um, whenever you select a unit and you go tell them to like build a house or something like that. Um, I think what you end up doing, and I sort of do it instinctively on the desktop, but I think you hit the, like the right, uh, and maybe it's, the, I don't know if it's the right or the left button on your mouse. And that, that place, you know, that says, you know, build a house here. And the problem I'm having with the pen is like the, the click isn't immediate because the pen surface is already on there and I'm not sure if it's a right click. So I was sort of fidgeting with the buttons. So I don't quite have that figured out, but just tapping around on the screen and telling units to move is, you know, it's as good, if not better than using a mouse on, on the computer. Cause you can move, you know, you can just jump your, you know, move your hand around on the screen. It's just, it, you, you sort of have to do it to, to understand what I'm talking about, but it's, um, it works really good for that type of game. That's cool. Yep. Uh, number six, <clears throat> extreme portability. So there were some comments talking about how this was, you know, this was, this just didn't really apply, but the fact is, and I know people have talked about this before on like windows weekly. I know they brought it up one time. The fact is, you know, if you go to the airport and you see what laptops people are using, they'll have, you know, some, some like gigantic HP or, or Dell, like the latitude D six ten or, or, um, I don't know, what is it like the 6510, you know, like that whole series of laptop, those things are, are gigantic. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why the, the MacBook air I think is, is so popular. Is it, it, it's so much lighter. It is, it's such a, a stark contrast to, to these gigantic laptops and, and, you know, the MacBook air is just as powerful. So now whenever we look at this device, we not only get, you know, the port, we actually get more portability in my opinion than the macbook air but not only that i think it's it's respectable for reading on and also you know if you look at some of the document management stuff that i talked about that's going to be way easier because it has a touchscreen and it has a pen macbook air doesn't have either of those um you know it's always kind of awkward working with you know a, a scanned in document on a on a typical laptop so i see that as a big advantage and then also the fact that you can have this thing go through you know airport security without taking it out of your bag so it's just kind of a kind of a game changer. And if you look at the 
power adapter on, on the Surface Pro 3 compared to what you have, Eric. This thing is actually a lot smaller and a lot lighter. And um, I think yours should also have this as well, but it has a USB port right on the power adapter. But the, the mm. power adapter weighs like nothing. That's um, cool. Yeah, and it, the, the one I have in the picture here, this I actually had this power adapter that is in this picture. It is literally the size of a brick. And that was from the Dell M6400. It was a pretty powerful machine, but the, the power adapter was literally the size of a brick. Yeah, so I had a Dell XPS 1730, so a 17-inch okay. gaming yeah, I think, laptop. Yeah, I think, I think that's the same power adapter then. It's got like a 230-watt power adapter that's yep. like bigger bigger than a brick. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that was always fun through, uh, through airport security. So Yeah, I, I couldn't find the exact weight of this, but it... The best, the best that I could find, it looked like it weighed three pounds. So nice. if you look at that adapter, uh, at three pounds, the entire service pro three with the power supply and the cover, you know, everything that you need, that'd be 2.78 pounds. So that's less than the, the power adapter for that other laptop. And that's huge yeah. because, you know, I, I carry everything in my backpack and mm-hmm. when I have my work laptop in there, I mean, you feel it. And especially if you're moving around all day or you're doing a lot of traveling, like you said, you notice that all day long. Mm-hmm. And when, I, when I toss my surface in there, um, it, it feels like it's empty. Yeah. So it, it's a lot less wear and tear on your body. You know, a few pounds doesn't seem like much, but it really is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, you know, pulling on you the wrong way. And, and this is getting so light that I'm, I'm at the point now where, um, I'm looking, you know, my backpack weighs more than the hardware in it. So now I'm like, okay, well, can I get, a backpack that's like super thin and weighs almost nothing, you know, and then you won't even, it'll just feel like you have nothing with you. And then plus for, you know, me, I fly probably once, you know, once every month and, um, you know, just having, having less stuff with you, but having all that functionality is really important. And this thing too, that, that was, that's the other thing. So actually that brings us into, um, point number seven. So the, the detachable keyboard, which I know, was sort of made fun of, you know, by Microsoft <laughs> unintentionally in the first commercials. It was just sort of bad marketing. But, um, you know, the the removable keyboard is is pretty huge. I, I know that there's a lot of people like on Windows Weekly, they always talk about, um, you know, why does a Microsoft make a laptop? But this detachable keyboard, I think, is a big deal. And for me, uh, you know, they they recently, you know, within the last few months, airlines have put extra rows of seats in the in the uh, airlines or in the airplanes. So if you guys haven't flown in a couple months, like you're in for a shock whenever you fly in, cause you've lost like another two inches. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, it's to the point now where I, I took out my laptop. I think this was like two or three trips ago. I put it on the tray and you know, the, the person in front of me reclines. Well, a- actually <laughs> what ended up happening the first time is, you know, the, the, I have an, a Lenovo X one carbon touch and the screen was sort of in the hole where the, or in the, like the notch where the, where the trade table goes and they reclined and it was like made this like loud crack, you know, cause it was just it, all of the pressure of that person's weight then went on the hinge of my laptop. I don't know how it didn't shatter. That's sort of a testament to the power of the ThinkPad, I guess. But, um, uh, then I tried to use it and you, you have to use the keyboard and the touchpad with, if you think about like those, like the Microsoft natural keyboard, how it's like split and your hands are angled. Like that's how you have to use your laptop on a plane. You cannot use it normal. So the fact that I can pop the keyboard off of the Surface Pro 3, I haven't done this yet. I have taken the Surface uh, 2 on the plane and it was very manageable. So I expect this to be about the same. Uh, but you sit that thing on the tray table and you have a ton of room there. 
And then if I need to recline the device a little bit and use the on-screen keyboard, I can do that as well. And if I need to do some development, then I can pop the keyboard on. Uh, it's probably not going to be that great, uh, but a laptop's not that great either. So it just gives me more options. Um, and then it's also great for movies. So I, you know, I, I was, I used to use my Surface 2 for movies. Then I got the, uh, the Lumia 1520. I started watching movies on there. Um, but then you got to sit there and hold the device the whole time. And I'm looking forward to this thing because it, again, it, it's got the kickstand on it. So you can just sit it on there and I think it'll, you know, you, I'll, I'll just have a, a real nice angle for looking down and watching it. So anyway, that was the, uh, you know, 10 minutes of surface marketing, apparently. <laughs> no, that wasn't my intent. I just, uh, I, it's, it's a unique device and it, it just bothers me whenever I see, uh, these people that are comparing it to, you know, that they'll just, they'll compare it to one thing, you know, they say, oh, well, it's sure it's as good as a MacBook air, but it costs more, you know, or they'll say it's not going to replace your iPad, you know, but that's, that's not, uh, I just think that's short-sighted. That's just, if you can, you can, you can compare any two things and, and find, you know, one attribute that's worse on one or the other. So, and I don't think that's what a lot of people are doing, unfortunately. Yeah. I think your use cases of, uh, the, the tray table, that's where I get the most use out of my surface, uh, is just, you know, doing some writing or something like that on, on a flight. It's just mm-hmm. a perfect size device for that. So exactly. So, I think another thing that has people thrown for a loop is the Surface isn't a, a device that's meant to re, be the replacement for everybody. I mean, it is meant for several purposes, and they're not going to be in line with what everybody needs to do. Right, right. Yeah, my my point is just that the the potential audience I think is greater than what the tech reviewers would like to like it to be, because um, they're they're trying to pigeonhole this into a particular category because that's what they want to do, right? And if you have a a website that does reviews. You have a section for tablets and you have a section for laptops. Like, where do you put this thing? Um, you know, it just gets, it's, it's, it's in that, that gray area. Um, so let's move on. So next news item, this one I was pretty excited about, and I, I this is just sort of just the, the start of this, but there's now observable object support in JavaScript. So this was actually part of the, um, I believe it was part of the ECMAScript uh, standard. So this is where you can, let me, let me pull up the link here. Uh, the, the news though, is that this is now added in Chrome 36 beta. So not, you know, not the, uh, current version that's out, but the, the next version. So, you know, Chrome, as you know, they have the, you know, the main line, then they have the, the dev branch. You can, you can jump on that train if you want. That gives you, you know, a preview of features that are going to be out soon. Then there's also, I think there's a developer and a canary build as well. Is there, is there four channels or three channels? Do you guys remember? Yeah, there's the stable beta dev and canary. Builds. Okay, okay, perfect. Yeah, so um, so this is in the beta, and what it is is uh, there's a function now in JavaScript. You do object dot observe, and you pass in an object, and it will add in change notification to an object. So the reason that this is a big deal is because whenever you're developing a web page, and let's say you're using Knockout or Angular or something like that, really what's going on under the hood is they are, um, you know, polling or they're wrapping, you know, the native JavaScript objects and they're, they're, you know, if they're, if they're wrapping the native JavaScript objects, then what they do is they basically are intercepting that and they're figuring out when to raise, you know, change notifications. So, um, you know, they're, they're making it so that you can be, you know, so that you can be notified whenever an object changes or what they can do 
And I think Angular takes this approach as they 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 do have some intelligence to figure out when they should check an object to, to see if it's dirty or not. But what the what Angular I think does by default is it will end up pulling that object. And if it thinks that the object might have changed, it will read its value, compare it to what it knows the last value was. And if it's different, then it says, oh, hey, this was changed. And then it will go through and kind of fire off a series of events to take that that view model and update the, you know, the DOM accordingly, however you have the, the binding set up. So this is huge because the, you know, both of those methods that I described are, they're not horribly inefficient, but they are way more inefficient than what they should be. So bringing this into the, the browser level makes it so that we can, you know, just take this to a completely different level of performance. So what's going to happen now is, you know, these various frameworks, um, you know, they, they can't count on this being everywhere. There's unfortunately browsers, um, you know, like the, you know, a lot of people on the older versions of Chrome, Firefox, Internet Explorer, um, they're going to have issues because this isn't there. So what they'll do is they'll do basically a polyfill where if, if the browser doesn't support this behavior, they'll, they'll, uh, you know, they'll uh, mimic it and, and, uh, and use it that way. And then over time, what we're going to see is all the browsers start to support this and we'll just get a lot better observable, uh, performance across the board. Um, any comments on that? No, I, I'm pretty excited about this because, um, in the past I've done a lot of work with knockout and knockout, mm. you know, uses its own observables, um, in, internally. And, um, you brought up that, you know, angular, uh, does that as well. And in this article, what I thought was interesting is they said, um, it took 40 milliseconds to do the angular way of checking to see if, uh, in a observable event has happened. Mm-hmm. Whereas just using that, the, the native one that's now implemented, it took one to two milliseconds, which right. is a crazy, you know, 40 times improvement over, you know, existing um, frameworks. And what, what'll be nice is once we see these um, uh, starting to be adopted in all of the browsers um, to see the the frameworks update themselves and, and start using this native one and um, everybody gets to use these uh, improvements. Yeah, Knockout, I found particularly horrible. To me, I, I didn't like the way Knockout did it. Um, I'm kind of odd that way. I I, I wanted my, my object model to be pure. Mm-hmm. And I know that there are ways to do that. I know uh, we've talked to, to Brandon and he said that there, you know, there's, there's ways of doing that to sort of mimic, I think, how Angular does it. But by default, you know, you were expected to create these, these sort of special types. Instead of saying, I have this number. You're saying, hey, I have this observable number instead so that you could add this in. So uh, the, one of the things that I like about this is just that it's going to clean up um, those types of things. Everything will just be observable by default. And the other thing that you're going to get is, you know, in the past, we tended to have smaller models and, you know, simpler designs. And as we go now, as we go forward, pages are getting more complex. There's a lot more to observe. So even if we can't take advantage of the increased you know, it's not necessarily going to speed up the page, but it's going to make it so that the more complex pages, you know, are actually usable. So this is this is actually pretty huge. And this this post here, we'll link this in the show notes, but it it goes through and it is extremely exhaustive. <laughs> it talks it shows a lot of examples and makes it so it's super easy to understand. Good diagrams here. So definitely check that out. Um, what, a couple things that I want to note here as well is that um um, I don't think we talked about it on the show, but Google announced not too long ago that they're starting to index dynamic content. 
So if you do have a page that that's using JavaScript to help with the generation of your page or using Angular where, you know, it's got its own um, uh, controllers and URL scheme where it's doing it, you know, after the hash sign, uh, that all does get indexed by Google now. So that that helps, um, you know, get rid of that issue of, you know, I have a website and I don't want to make it dynamic because I know Google won't index it. So that that's going, you know, that's pretty much gone now. Um, so I wanted to point that out. And then the other thing that I wanted to point out was that there's a page, it's called status.modern.ie. And if you look at this, this um, object model, if you look at this um, observable object functionality, it's listed as under consideration in there, along with a lot of other features that are part of the standard. So I think it's only a matter of time before we you know, see this implemented across the board. Yeah, and, and I've noticed that the IE team, um, they, they don't always say too far out in advance that, hey, this is coming. Mm-hmm. But um, considering that it's under consideration mm-hmm. and um, that it's coming out in Chrome, I can't imagine it not being out in IE 12. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think there's any reason not to do it. This is this is just a win win for everybody. OK, so now we'd like to talk specifically to Eric um, in regards to Azure. So finally, we we have we get to talk about Azure. I know we've had a lot of episodes where we're talking about Windows, Windows Phone, um, but we finally have uh, a topic that's near and dear to my heart, which is Azure. That's what I do uh, pretty much day in and day out. I do a little bit of Windows work, but it's primarily Azure. So we have Eric on here today. So, um, so Eric, let's, let's just get started. So, you know, we're kind of curious, like what, you know, what types of projects or what things are you working on, uh, with Azure today? So we, we cover the gamut. So I get to work on projects ranging from, uh, like pure PaaS uh, sort of projects in what we used to think of as being what Azure really was, which is cloud services or hosted services. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all Azure was at that time. And so I, I still work on projects that are completely in that space. Uh, I work on projects that are kind of higher level PaaS abstractions. So things running in Azure websites or mobile services as well. Mm-hmm. Um, from So mobile apps and, and, and the like. So, uh, and then we also end up doing a lot as IaaS has come about in Azure doing a lot of just workload migration to Azure. So existing data centers, migrating that to Azure, um, maybe extending data centers into Azure, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. lots of lots of different kinds of projects. Um, you know, and that and that's coming at it from a from an Azure sort of offering perspective, but lots of lots of stuff in that way. Yeah. So, so talking about, you know, just so everybody understands, you know, the distinction there and, and the different models that you can use within Azure, you're talking about PaaS and IaaS and those types of things. So I, I, we've talked about it before on the show, I know, but I'd like to sort of reiterate that, that, that continuum as, as I think of it. So at one end we have, you know, IaaS, what you mentioned. So that's just, that's just virtual machines running in the cloud. And then whenever we go to the PaaS level, like you mentioned, that was that was sort of how Azure got started. So that that's where you upload a package and you say, "Here's my code. I don't I don't want to manage the machine. I don't want to have to worry about patching and those types of things. Just just please run run this package." And there might be some special stuff in there that says, "Hey, when the machine starts up, I want you to run this." And you know, here's here's how you configure everything. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have SaaS, 
which would be, you know, something like websites, which I'm sure we'll talk about here. But there we just upload our website and we say, hey, I, I don't care what this runs on. Um, I don't I don't want to know how any of that works. Just just run my website code. Anything yep. you want to add to that sort of, you know, picture there? You know, so then there's higher level distractions even over that, right? The mobile services abstractions and stuff right, like that. Right, right. Right. So it's... Um, at the core, you're right on. It's in terms of where you want to run your applications, cloud services, virtual machines, websites. Um, and then, you know, you have storage as well off to the side of where do I want to store my data? So there's storage at its kind of fundamental service. There's things like SQL databases. Um, if you want a relational database equivalent, um, you know, lo- lots of lots of options in storage as well. So. Yeah, but at the core, that's what you're getting is compute and storage in various flavors, depending on how you want to um, how you want to work with it. So your your needs really. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, at the beginning of the show, we introduced you as an Azure MVP, and to me, you know, I think, wow, I mean, there's got to be something really interesting, you know, for somebody to be an MVP in an area. What has you excited for this platform today? Yeah, so I've been working with Azure from the beginning, so since 2008, and uh, and I I love it from all sorts of perspectives. So you know I've been uh, in multiple roles in my career, from developer to consultant to business owner to tech exec, uh, and so for me it's like seeing it from all those perspectives. Of as a developer, I just need to go provision some stuff really quickly. Like I need to, a place to put a website uh, to test a web API. Or I need a place to spin up a server to test something. Um, so that's really appealing to me uh, from that perspective. You know, from a, a tech exec perspective, it's I I don't have the time to wait for uh, hardware acquisition and provisioning this infrastructure in our data center. Uh, I really need to move quick on something, and so it's just self service. Here's a credit card done like i can just spin this stuff up really quickly or my team can spin this stuff up really quickly and that same sort of thing applies for folks that you know are, are business owners as well um just that rapid uh, sort of process of getting started um so that's what's that's why i and it's not just azure in that in that sense it's just cloud all up like that's why i really am jazzed about uh, cloud stuff because it just thinks about these these resources and this infrastructure differently than we've thought about it on premises, uh, you know, up until now. So, mm-hmm. um, in terms of Azure, like the the feature set, it's it is just constantly evolving. It's it's actually quite difficult to keep up. Uh, so we think about the enormity of the .NET framework. Um, there are fr- probably very few people who have really broad usage of the .NET framework in kind of its uh, as a whole because um, it's just so big. Uh, Azure is becoming that same that same kind of animal of it is so big there are lots of things you know you might you might be a web developer and you might use um, websites or, or virtual machines or something like that. You could be a mobile developer and use mobile services. Uh, you could be uh, a data scientist and use HD Insight. And, but you might not cross over all these all these areas because it's becoming just such a big thing. And so, and then last week there was the announcement from uh, Saya of the machine learning stuff. And mm-hmm. so, uh, so yeah, it's I think you know that's really exciting for me. It's just fast paced, uh, lots of innovation and change going on, and, um, and so that's exciting 
you know, as a developer, really getting to uh, be involved in in all of that change. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think you're going to see more people start to specialize because of that. And, the, you know, the platform, I think, is ultimately going to do that as well. It's going to, you know, you're going to see, um, you know, developers focused on certain verticals. And then I, I think they'll they'll sort of group around, you know, certain vertical technologies within Azure because it is, you know, it is it is growing very quickly. And it's 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 very difficult to keep up on on like everything Azure. If you want to be an expert in everything Azure, that's it's just getting to the point of impossibility now. Oh, you're right on. And, and the thing you say that I think that's really interesting is you know, developers are probably going to specialize, but there's this whole other IT pro world in Azure now too, mm-hmm. you know, things like just integrating your on-premises data centers with Azure. So, you know, you have like a virtual network capability to create that VPN tunnel, but then you have services for doing things like backing up uh, and giving you disaster recovery for Hyper-V. Um, so very IT pro centered uh, scenarios uh, enabled by Azure, which, you know, in 2008, Azure was just, let me build some uh, WCF services and, you know, some partial trust websites in a, a shared data center. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's come a long way and uh, it's hitting a lot of a lot of different audiences. So, right. So with with the, you know, with the constant upgrades, what is something specifically that you've been working with a lot lately? Something, you know, that, that's come out fairly recently. So I spend a lot of time on the architecture side of things and helping uh, with things like performance optimization. I just finished uh, a book for Microsoft Press that's a step-by-step Microsoft Azure SQL database. And so I've spent a lot of time in that SQL database space lately as well and, mm-hmm. and optimizing performance of that. Um, and that's an area that's had some good change and innovation recently uh, that I'm really excited about. So we just, the book actually, uh, Lenny Lobel and I wrote this book and it's uh, available, I think, the day before Independence Day, so July third, okay, from from Microsoft Press. But um, even and, since, and we'll definitely link to that in the show notes as well. Sure, yeah, I appreciate it. So even even since that book, you know, there's new great innovation in SQL Database. So we have these new SQL Database editions. So if you've used SQL Database in the past, the way it works, it's a multi-tenant data service, and so to do multi-tenancy well, uh, what most uh, cloud vendors do is throttle the capability, mm-hmm. uh, the performance, uh, because what you don't want to have happen is, you know, Jason and Carl and I were all sitting on the same database server with our databases, and I run some SQL process that eats up the entire uh, machine, the resources of that machine, and now your databases are unusable. Yep. And so, in order to maintain that sort of uh, kind of level uh, usage or performance will all get throttled or governed, if you will. And so we can only get this level of performance, but occasionally you might spike and affect my performance and that sort of thing. And so you could have inconsistent performance. So sometimes I may be able to use a little more resources uh, than, than other times. And so now what we have is uh, new additions in SQL database that give us predictive, consistent performance expectations. Um, so we shouldn't see those, you know, that spike in available resources for us. We should just have that consistent kind of level set of resources all the time, which is really helpful if you're trying to build a, a system that you need predictability, which most most are. So Right. Yeah. And what you were referring to, um, I've heard that called the noisy na- neighbor syndrome. 
exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you're trying to avoid that. Um, it, that, that sort of thing backfired, uh, with the caching service. So it's not ideal for something like SQL database, but to do that with a caching service where you're actually using the caching service because you need high performance, low latency, um, that really didn't work well with Azure caching. And so they changed the way that works. Um, and so no longer is it a multi-tenant service. Like you actually get your own carved out set of resources as well now with caching. Um, but yeah, there, there's some places where the noisy neighbor um, uh, kind of protections of, of throttling works and some where it really doesn't at all. So, mm-hmm. so yeah. I've been working a lot with, you know, in that space and doing performance optimization as well for customers uh, using services like uh, SQL uh, and SQL databases uh, in Azure. Because SQL database has different performance characteristics and even SQL server in virtual machines uh, in Azure has different performance characteristics than you would have on-premises because on-premises you kind of spec out and design your exact hardware scenario. Uh, and in Azure you just don't have that luxury. And so you have to you know, tweak some things and optimize things to get great performance. And so, uh, so those are areas that I've worked a lot in lately. Now working with, you know, clients and and developers, do you find that there's like pieces of Azure that are underused by developers or maybe people should look into using more when they're building, uh, different, uh, software projects with it? Um, so I don't know about underutilized, uh, there are certainly more popular services. I think I think websites today is really uh, popular. Uh, it's just uh, it's just e- there's just frictionless, so it's mm-hmm. easy to get started, easy to deploy your applications, uh, your web apps, that sort of thing. One of the things that I don't think is taken advantage of in websites uh, that could be used more is the web jobs capability. Uh, so whenever we think about background processing, our natural uh, kind of tendency is to think about uh, Windows services, right? So we want something to run in the background to do some sort of background processing. Maybe it's, you know, the, the canonical examples would be image processing to resize images or compress images. So whatever that might be, uh, we think about Windows services. And then when we went to cloud services in Azure, there were web and worker roles. And so then we started using worker roles for that background job scheduling or or processing. Well, now in websites, you can do the same kind of thing. You can schedule, uh, you can upload your application, uh, whatever that background process is. And so the the cool thing is it could be, you know, uh, a Python file or it could be a JavaScript file um, or it could be a console app. It could be an XE as well. But you upload that to your Azure um, web jobs in your web, in your Azure website and you can set, uh, um, a schedule for that, or you can you could run it on demand as well. But most people would want to set a schedule or run it continuously, and you could do that. And so now I have this background process that's just running in my website without having to build up any infrastructure, without having to do all of the um, you know the plumbing and the ceremony around uh, web roles inside of cloud services, or without having to manage a virtual machine in IaaS. And so that that is a feature that I think developers it might think is more complex than it really is um, until they really see how it works. And so 
truly a web job can be pretty much anything. Um, there's a lot of supported formats, but even if you just have a console app, you just upload your console app, attach a schedule to it, and uh, and you're off and running, and and the website's going to run that. And so it's inexpensive, very low. Uh, kind of friction in terms of uh, maintenance, development, that sort of thing. So management. Yeah, that does sound a lot simpler than uh, using the worker roles. I know that's something that I've used in the past. And and like you said, there, you know, there is a little bit of a pain on getting it working and tweaked just right how you need to. So, Yep. And the deployment of that is a lot more complex, right? So um, the deployment of uh, a cloud service is I package it up, I upload it, I provision a VM, that sort of thing. In the and it takes a little while. It takes you know s- several minutes to make that happen. Um, on the web job side of things, it's just upload. You know, I could FTP it or web deploy um, my web job, and and you're done. Like it's just it's just there and running. Uh, so it's it's a lot a lot easier. And I you know I'm the same way. I've I've been working in this space for so long that I've done lots of web role stuff. And, and there's scenarios where that still makes sense, right? So here's the limiting factor with websites. If I need to have uh, my applications running inside of a virtual network for some reason. So in Azure, I can build up my own network space and I can do things like create a VPN tunnel back to my data center through that network space. And that's that capability is called virtual network. If I need that, whatever that website or service is to run inside of that virtual network, then websites don't work for me. And so I have to start thinking about virtual machines or cloud services at that point. So there are, there are scenarios where I still need to do that. But if I don't have that uh, constraint, websites are definitely the way to go. What are some things that maybe some somebody new to Azure um, uh, end up being really nice to have that they don't expect? Yeah. Um, because I know there's a lot of people out there that, you know, they've heard of Azure, but, you know, it's it's something that they don't get to do at work and they want to try it out. And, you know, you know, what's something that they could, you know, maybe look forward to that they might not be used to in the, their average working environment or something they could go to their boss with. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, I think it's really fundamental, but I think just having that self-service kind of instant pay-as-you-go capability like just the fundamentals of what we how we define cloud make azure really compelling especially for microsoft developers Uh, so if i want to go take my asp.net website and just quickly deploy that uh, from visual studio i can do that now to azure i can just right click and say publish and it'll pop up a nice little wizard and ask me if i want to deploy it to you know i log in with my live id and it will give me some options of where I want to deploy that, what website I want to deploy that to, and that sort of thing. Um, Visual Studio now, when you create, inside of 2013, when you create a new uh, web application, it will ask you that as well. Like, do you want to go ahead and create an Azure website with this and deploy your application there? And so those are really nice. Just that, that integration is really nice. Um, and it might not be, you know, if you're new to Azure, it's one of those moments, kind of an aha moment that's like, wow, this is super simple for me to just deploy a website to Azure. Uh, in addition to that, you get 10 websites for free. So I can go create, you know, um, 
jasonyoung.azurewebsites.net right now. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but um, let's assume that's the case. Mm-hmm. It's not taken. And it's not going to cost me a dime. Like I can go create that and run that. And so if I'm just doing something for development reasons, you know, building a mobile app and I want to put my web services out there and test that or, you know, whatever the case may be, uh, I can I can do that for free. And so those are some things that developers may not be familiar with uh, if they're new to Azure that I think are really compelling. Hey, tweaking that question just a little bit. Now, uh, let's just say that uh, there's a client that's new to the cloud. Um, what kind of expectations do does that kind of uh, person or company have their first time when they start interacting with Azure? Or- um, it, clarify that a little bit more. So when you say expectations, like what do you mean? So what when people want to move something that they have to the cloud for the first time, yep. what do they think the cloud is and what do they think they're going to get? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not really sure, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes people have a little bit of a perspective of, I have unlimited resources to me. So I have an application that's running poorly in my data center. So if I just move that to the cloud, it's going to run really well. (laughs) So I've seen that kind of mentality before. Good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> and the reality is, if you have an application that's running poorly in your data center, unless it's just running on really, really old hardware or you know something crazy like that, it's unlikely to run better in the cloud. It will, it's likely to run worse in the cloud um, because we architect data centers on premises a little differently than you know the way the cloud services work. Um, so, I think that can be a common. Uh, kind of misconception going into it is we expect this just to run really fast. And then as a result, you end up spending time optimizing applications and and uh, doing what you should have always done uh, probably in your own data center, but you just ignored it because you could throw more hardware at it or you know tweak the the infrastructure or network a little bit to make it run uh, in a way that was acceptable. So so okay. does that kind of make it easier to, you know knowing the limitations of the cloud, does that make it easier to architect software better? Uh, so not everybody has this problem, right? So that's the, that's the thing to start off with. So I, it's really fun and cool to architect applications. Uh, It's a challenge to architect applications like a Facebook or a Twitter would architect applications, right? And probably just because as developers, we like a challenge. And so that's, that's fun. Not everybody has those demands. And so not everybody needs to architect an application like that. Um, so I, I guess you may not need to worry about that kind of scale going into it. Um, but if you have a need where you need to scale it horizontally, you have peaks and valleys. And so when I say scale it horizontally, your application, you want to be able to have a web farm with four nodes, for example, and distribute requests across those nodes. Or you have uh databases that you need to partition and scale and split across multiple uh, physical storage nodes. You have to think about that architecture differently uh, to do that. And so it's those are the kinds of things that you probably, if you had that problem to begin with, you probably should have thought about that in your own data center, but you worked around it by scaling up, by buying bigger and bigger hardware, which has an exponential cost, not a linear cost like scaling out does. Uh, And so you avoided that by just throwing money at it. 
So you, you know, you probably should have always thought about that, but the cloud forces you to think about that because there are upper limits uh, on how big I can scale up. Now, having said that, a virtual machine today, I can provision a 16 core, 112 gig VM in Azure. So those are pretty big upper limits, but they're still like, if I'm building a massively scalable application, I'm likely going to run into those at some point. So does that make sense? Yeah. Perfect. So what, um, you know, when it comes to Azure, I, I asked this question quite a bit. So what, what, fe- what features are missing? Like what, what do you run into on a day-to-day basis? And you're like, Oh, I wish Azure did X, Y, or Z. Do you have, do you have a list or, you know, you yeah. just want to talk about one of those? Yeah. So there's definitely a list of things, you know, mm-hmm. one of, I was just talking about this a little bit ago. One of the things that you cannot do in Azure, and it's not at the end of the world, there's ways around this, but one of the things that you can't do is uh, send mail. You can't SMTP out from Azure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's ways around this, like SendGrid and other mail partners. So you just plug their configuration in and you can send mail out. But you know, it's one of the things that if you're just moving an application from your own data center to Azure, that may throw you off uh, a little bit, and you may not expect that. Um, so I don't, I don't know that. I, I would say it's a, it's certainly a f- capability that's missing. Uh, is it a feature that we really need in Azure? There are certain scenarios where we really need to be able to send SMTP, um, but for the most part, I think using a third party like SendGrid works just fine. Yeah, and and to be clear on SendGrid, I mean they, they are you know the the pricing is is very good on it. The, the way that you provision it in Azure is, is actually pretty easy because it's, it's listed, uh, in the, you know, in the Azure store there Mm -hmm. and, and configuring that and getting up and running with it is really easy. There, there used to be this issue where if you had an enterprise agreement, you could not go in and, and provision some of these third-party services. You'd have to go actually go out to sendgrid.com and set it up. Uh, those limitations are gone now, fortunately. So, um, yeah, or or what would happen is you would, you would set up a a second subscription that wasn't on your EA that was just a credit card subscription so right. you could buy these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. But SendGrid, I, I love SendGrid. Um, you know, it's so easy to configure because you can use an SMTP interface and they also have uh, an API interface. It's pretty easy to use. I'm, I agree. I, uh, I like SendGrid a lot. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the tips that I would offer is, is you can go out to SendGrid.com and create an account. Um, when you do that, you can send 200 uh, messages a day. You get 200 credits per day. Mm-hmm. If you provision a SendGrid account through the Azure Store, the free tier is 25,000 a month. Okay. So you get a good bit more um, in terms of what you can send just by doing it through the Azure Store than going directly to SendGrid. And so just a little tip for folks that are thinking about this or uh, haven't yet set up a, a SendGrid account, uh, that's one way to, to go do that for free and, and get uh, some extra credits. So Yeah, 25,000 messages a day. That should that should handle so most people. <laughs> 20, 25,000 a month. Or a month, I mean. That's yeah. What I mean. Yeah, that, yeah, that, that should that, handle most people. Yeah, I, that you're right on. Yeah, <laughs> it'll handle most scenarios. <laughs> Any other missing features? Yeah, we've... With the addition of IaaS, we encounter a lot of things like um, 
you know, Azure Files, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, yeah, the SMB sh share functionality you're talking about? Yeah, this yep. was a really painful one for us for a long time. And Azure Files isn't, um, so I've been playing a lot with Azure Files with customers lately. And uh, it's not it's not the perfect solution yet, but mm -hmm. it's it's going down the right path. And so not, not being able to, so... So Azure Virtual Machines provides you this ability to move legacy workloads to Azure, right? Mm -hmm. So I have a legacy code base running inside of um, servers on-premise that I don't want to touch. I don't want to tweak to work with cloud services or websites or something like that. So I just lift and shift that and I move it to Azure. But I have some dependency on a network share, an SMB share, a file server of some sort. And I don't want to switch all of that file I.O. to use blob storage directly. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the only way, uh, so there really wasn't a way to get a high availability sort of file share besides doing, besides changing all that code. Well, now Azure Files gives us an SMB head uh, on storage, uh, basically, that gives us a highly available uh, storage share that I can access from my legacy applications. So that's, you know that's a great improvement. We still have, you know, performance things that we can that we could get better in Azure. So, uh, disk performance has room for improvement. Uh, and these are you know the common things people are running into. So whenever I you know whenever you try to build a a high performance SQL uh, cluster or something like that in Azure, um, it's it, you could run into performance uh, issues. Uh, through IOPS, disk latency, stuff like that. And so there's some room for improvement there as well. But there's, you know, I have a, a pretty big list uh, that we, I get to iterate with the, with the product <laughs> groups on uh, on what could be better. Okay. Excellent. We, uh, yeah. But there's always stuff improving too. Like, you know, f on that list, Azure Files would have been on that list, you know, a couple of months ago, virtual mm -hmm. network improvements. So up until a couple of months ago, there was no way to have multiple site to site connections. Right. Not now you can. Yep. And so that it's constantly evolving and that list is constantly being um kind of taken care of. So so it's good. Yeah, I've definitely heard, you know, the list that you mentioned. I've heard that before. But the the you know the list used to be really long. And, yeah. and you're and you're right. It's it's gotten down now. I, I've talked to a couple people that have have worked with Azure on on you know specific projects and say what what's missing. And it's gotten to the point now where occasionally they'll be like, ah, it has everything that we need. Um, and that's great. Yeah. And, it's, and, it's every, really good. and, and honestly, like everything that's missing now, um, you know, it's usually, it's usually not the end of the world. I mean, if you have, if you have, uh, you know, if you pick any application at random and say, can I run this in Azure, you know, does it have the capability that I need? The answer is yes. Um, you know, there just might be some scenarios where, you know, there's some, you know, might not be the the perfect scenario. You talked about the the IOPS, you know, the disk performance not being good. There's, you know, there's ways there's ways that you can get around that. Um, you know, there's some optimizations that you can do around that today. Yeah, and so so there, that's a great example, right? So mm -hmm. so yes, um, I, I would agree with that with a but on the end, right? Mm -hmm. So it depends on what your constraints are. Mm -hmm. um, if you are okay saying I don't have constraints around my application. Like I could change some things in my application or my configuration. There's ways around that, right? So for example, if I have a constraint of an older version of SQL Server, then I'm really kind of, um, there's not a lot I can do if I need to push beyond 8,000 IOPS 
And that's the best case scenario mm-hmm. on Azure today, right? But if I don't have that constraint, then I could go to SQL 2014 and I could run the in-memory uh, Hecaton stuff. And now I'm not going back to disk anymore. So I throw that on a 112 gig instance in Azure. I'm no longer going to disk all the time. And now my IOPS are through the roof, um, you know, on the order of like 30 times faster um, just because I'm not going back to disk. And so IOPS is no longer an issue for me, right? So it depends on your constraints. um, But if you eliminate some of those kinds of uh, limiting factors of what versions of software and can you make changes to your application, then I would pretty much generally agree that you could, you could make any application run in Azure. So, right. So what, um, so what do you do on a day-to-day basis at, uh, at responsive X? <laughs> you know, I do a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of everything, man. So, uh, I'd spend most of my time working with customers. Um, responsive X, we're a consultancy. We, uh, help customers, um, build applications, web mobile and traditional client apps. Um, mm-hmm. and generally, you know, we haven't worked on a project to date that wasn't linked to Azure in some way. So we've been around for two and a half years. We're not an old company and we're a pretty small company as well. Um, but we work with customers all over the U.S. Uh, we try to try to stay in the Chicago, Milwaukee area as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is we have customers all over. Um, and then we help customers migrate their on-premises workloads. So maybe they want to migrate uh, an older application or get rid of their data center entirely and move uh, stuff to Azure. We help move those traditional IaaS workloads as well. Um, so that's kind of what ResponsiveX is. Uh, and then I end up trying to spend most of my time with customers. And so uh, it's it's difficult because there's a lot of stuff that we do. <laughs> so we do a lot of events as well. We just got done with an event series uh, around dev test and how Azure uh, can help with dev test. And so, um, so I do a lot of events. I speak at a lot of conferences and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I really try to spend a lot of my time personally just hands-on uh, doing architecture uh, sessions and optimization sessions with customers and training and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I noticed that uh, ResponsiveX does a lot of uh, community learning events. Um, yeah. As part, as part of that, you know, where is Azure at in the mindshare of like the average developer out there? I'm, I'm always surprised because I think you know, I, I every time we do an event like this, we just did like Global Windows Azure boot camp back in March, I think. And we back then it was Global Windows Azure. Now it's Microsoft Azure. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> um, so I'm always surprised because I am just immersed in this stuff. And so I, I just have this kind of expectation that everybody else is familiar with Azure. And then, you know, you see half uh, a room of developers that may have never even seen the Azure portal, like seen it, not created a su- subscription, but ever yep. even seen I've, it. I've been in know? the same boat. It's, it's, it just seems crazy to me, but that's, that's the reality. Yeah. And you know, it's be- because of things like free websites or, and, and most developers have MSDN. And so that's the shocking thing for me as well is you guys, you know, you have free access to Azure, um, I can't imagine that you have no needs for like spinning up a website or a VM to test something. And maybe you do. Um, but with MSDN, you have free access to use it, uh, you know, up to certain levels. And so it's just shocking to me. Um, those that don't. So here's, here's something that's really new in Azure, probably in the last couple of months. 
for MSDN subscribers, you can now, so this is a kind of a, a combination of things. It, it's a result of Visual Studio now letting you log into Visual Studio and validating your licensing mm-hmm. uh, with MSDN and Azure IaaS and uh, the ability to, with your MSDN, to run Windows client OSs in Azure. Mm-hmm. So now you can log into the management portal, spin up a VM with Visual Studio 2013 running on Windows 8.1 in Azure, log into that, log into Visual Studio using your MSDN credentials, and use that in Azure to dev against. So if you have, you know, I know some companies that have policies that say, you know, we're not installing anything better than uh, Visual Studio 2012 or 2010 or something like that. No worries. Uh, You don't have to install anything on your system. You just log into Azure and use a VM in Azure, and it's pretty painless. So uh, lots of stuff like that that make it those developers that have MSDN that maybe aren't familiar with Azure, those are great ways to just get started and find some utility and benefit from using Azure. No, that, that's a great point. You, you can have your, your dev box up in Azure, you know, accessible anywhere. You can be on the road and it could be from, uh, you know, it doesn't even have to be from your computer, right? You could remote in from, from a, a you know, a computer and a library, you know, for all, all, yep. all that matters. Or if you have, you know, like a RT device or, or exactly. even if you have an iPad or something like that, you can remote in and you can actually be using full windows with uh, visual studio with, with everything installed. It's pretty slick. And, you know, you just shut it down at night and because of the discounts on the, with the MSDN, yeah, you could, you can easily get a pretty beefy machine and run that pretty much every day for your dev work. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a great way to get started for developers. Okay. So, um, are you building any any applications these days for yourself? You know, I have uh, <laughs> a big list of apps that would love to build. You know, lately I've been digging the home automation thing. Yeah. So I haven't gotten into it too deep, but um, been doing a lot of research around, uh, you know, not just things like Nest and uh, and all that sort of stuff, but you know, I want to want to build some very specific things to make Nest even more useful in 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 my home. Um, you know, using things like Netduino or Arduino and some motors and and stuff like that. And so I've been checking out lots of stuff in the in the home automation Z-Wave sort of space, uh, and thinking that I, if I ever get some extra time, that I'll spend some time doing that and ultimately build apps and APIs around that. Uh, and so internet of things, of course, you know, comes mm-hmm. into play there. But, uh, so I, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that space, but I have, I have lists of app ideas that, you know, if I ever had really time that I wasn't working with customers, which would not be a good thing, I suppose. But if that were the case, then I have plenty of apps that I could go build, but I'm not actively building anything right now. Okay. Yeah. If you ever wanted to, uh, to come on the show and talk about home automation, I'd love to chat with you on that. Even, mm. if, even if your ideas aren't fully formed, cause that's definitely an area that's near and dear to me. I just, uh, the technology just isn't quite there yet. And one, one news story that we, we didn't cover that, that maybe we should have was, uh, this week Nest opened up their developer program. Did you see that? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's huge. So they they had in there a couple different scenarios. Looks, I, I looked at their API. It looks like it's pretty easy to use. But they had a couple different scenarios where you know your car could be talking to your house so that you know it knows whenever you're on your way home, and it could be you know using that for occupancy detection. I actually talked about some of this on the last episode before this was the news was announced. I was saying, hey, these these things need to start working to, you know better together. 
I still have a problem with it because we're still going from, you know, device A or device X to the nest. You know, we're still, it's, it's just not quite where it needs to be. If you look at industrial automation and, and not that industrial automation is, is perfect, but you know, there's, there are some standards in place so that you can, you know, for the most part, interact with, with some devices generically. Again, it's, it's pretty much a mess there as well. They, they, there've been a couple of companies that have attempted to, to fix that whole problem, but it just seems like we need something like that for the home. And, um, you know, one thing here is it's, you know, it's like the old saying, you know, the, the great thing about standards is that there's so many to choose from. Mm. And, I, and I think, and that's, that's, that's what's happening right now. Right. So Nest is like, this is the API. This is how you talk to things. And they want to own like all these different devices. They just bought, um, drop cam, yep. you know, so they want to, they want to control those two things. And then you have, you know, go up one level, Google owns nest. Google wants to do some things in home automation. They actually announced a few things today. Apple a couple of weeks ago announced, um, you know, they want to, they want to own the standard for it. There's some companies that have sort of grouped together and said, we're, we're going to talk to each other. And another group said, well, we're going to talk to each other too, but they're not, you know, those two groups aren't going to talk to each other. So I just, the whole thing is just a mess. And it's, I don't, I don't know if, if we're just going to all of a sudden in six months, see like this whole thing clear up, or if we're just going to see it getting worse and worse. So here, here's the thing for me. So let's, uh, let me, I've been researching this out quite a bit. And so the, the, leader that i can see at this point the only leader that i can see is z-wave like as a as a protocol or a technology for working with all of your home automation devices so it's not wi-fi it's like a another like rf sort yeah of. it's it's a it's a 2.4 gigahertz um but yep. it, yeah but it's a it's it's specifically designed for devices another one is uh, zigbee and usually yep. the the chips support both Yep. And so, you know, there's other standards like X10 and stuff like that. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, but Z-Wave seems to be the leader in this space right now. Um, the problem with that is, so now I need another access point in my house, like a controller to talk to all these devices. Mm-hmm. Um, like I would really just like to do this over a bus over Wi-Fi. Like why can't I just, why can't everything be connected to Wi-Fi in some way? But, um, so yeah, it's stuff like that. And then, and then you have devices like Nest that, don't do the Z-Wave thing, right? They have their own just API that you connect to that is, and they are connected to um, your your net connection, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there are, there are challenges. I've been spending some time in this space trying to figure that out. And there are challenges in this space, but what I would ultimately like or what I'm thinking about right now, and so I'll just throw this out there. I don't care if somebody takes it and builds it because I would just rather buy it than <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm probably not going to get time to build it anyway. So, so here's my scenario. Um, I have, you know, windows like in my house, casement windows that have the crank, uh, sort of, uh, controls. Right? right. So, um, so it seems like I should be able to put like some sort of servo motor over those cranks mm-hmm. and connect as a Z wave to it, uh, on a, on a board, a Netduino or an Arduino and control those. Right. So then I would expose out an API or something like that and control that, um, or do it through Z wave. Okay, so that's really cool. So now I put those on all of my windows. And so now up here in Wisconsin, you know, we, we don't need the AC a whole lot in the summer, but occasionally. And so I have a nest on the wall and I have a, a thermometer outside and I have a rain sensor outside. And it would be really nice if this system could just say, hey, you know what? Today it's 60 degrees outside. Yep. Open all of your windows mm-hmm. and it's not raining. Great. Oh, here we, we now sensor rain. So close all your windows, turn your AC on. 
um, that sort of thing. That would be great integration, and it would even save your energy bill like that much more uh, beyond just what the Nest can do today. So that's the kind of scenario that I'm I've been thinking about in home automation is how do we tie all this stuff together now and really build out entire scenarios and workflows that really uh, benefit. Yeah, that that's great. And what's frustrating about it is what you described. There's nothing complicated about that. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, in, I, you know, last week's episode, uh, it, I, it was the audio quality was horrible. So I, I don't, uh, you know, if some, if people didn't listen to it, I totally understand. Cause it, my, my audio was pretty bad on it, but, uh, we, we did talk about, um, about some of these things and I actually had a, a blog post as well, talking about the internet of things. And I was talking about some home automation topics and there was actually, there's some, some pictures on there of a touchscreen for a home automation system from 1985. And it does pretty much everything you're describing. That was yep. 30 years ago. I mean, right. it, it was just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how we've done almost nothing in 30 years. Now, what has happened in 30 years is, is all these individual pieces have gotten trivially easy. I mean, I was at a Hackfest recently and they were like building these things, you know, they're just, they, they had, um, how long, I think they had two days and they were building like fire detection systems for forests and they were building, um, they were, they were building all these different home automation things. Like you were talking about, they were also doing like advertising that would dynamically change based on the weather, you know, it would change between like advertising coats and ice cream and, and those types of things. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just, they're just building these things in two days, but you know, that's, that's like the easy part. The hard part is, is making it so that the, the, your, your standard, your typical consumer can figure out how to buy these things, how to put them together and then how, how to tell it, like, here's what I want it to do. And that's why the nest has been successful because it's so easy to use. But the second you want that to start to talk to everything else, then, you know, it's way beyond the, the typical consumer. So yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. Yeah, I agree. And, and the fact that all of these things, you know, like there's, there's so many scenarios here, like, you know, you're walking through rooms and all this stuff is possible with, it's been possible with commercial like home automation systems for a long time, but walking through rooms, lights coming on that sort of thing, or, you know, it's, uh, it's morning time and I, you know, I have APIs, so I know what time sunrise is. So just open the blinds, uh, wake me up. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, That's actually a good way to be, to be waking up. So. Exactly. So stuff like that, like all this stuff is possible. It's just make just consumerizing it is really mm-hmm. the the work that has to be done. So yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the one thing I'll leave you with there, check out smarthome.com. Yeah. That, that has like, you know, that has all the components and you can, you can build it. It's not necessarily easy to, to build it today. Um, even though the nothing is particularly complicated, it's just, it's just a hassle yep. all around. Exactly. So the thing I've been looking at is, so you're familiar with like the Belkin Wemo. Yep. So that's, you know, that's cool. It's consumerized, but that's not really what I want. What I really want is to replace my receptacles. And so I've been looking at the GE um, Z-Wave receptacles. And uh, so I can just replace the wall outlet completely. Now they're right. like 40, 40 bucks an outlet. So a little more expensive than a yeah, normal outlet. I looked at doing that whenever I was building my house. Yeah. But it's really really pretty cool, right? So I can just have all my outlets be uh, controllable uh, if need be, or the outlets that need to be at least, um, switches and that sort of thing. So things like uh, my outdoor lights, the same sort of thing. Like I could talk to an API to say, hey, it's uh, it's sunset already. 
So instead of predefining the the timer, go ahead and turn my outdoor lights on based on today's sunset from, you know, the weather API. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those sorts of things that should be easy to do, and and now we can sort of do it by piecing it together ourselves but hopefully all that gets consumerized so right well we should have a we should have a future episode on this i'm sure we could fill yeah. up we could fill Be up fun. an entire episode of just home automation topics sure uh, but why don't we uh why don't we move on carl what do you got for the app of the week so this week's app of the week was inspired by a an sdk that uh went uh gold this week as well it's called the nokia sensor core sdk and what this uh allows is it allows um phones that have the lumia cyan update and um uh snapdragon 80x processors so that's the lumia icon the lumia 1520 as well as the new 930 630 and 635 um it gives um an additional sdk to tap into um additional sensors in there so you can do things like um have a fitbit app without requiring an additional fitbit hardware Mm-hmm. Um, it also allows you, uh, so that steps, uh, can track activities, places as well as something they call track point monitoring. And, um, the specific app this week is it's apparently already in the Bing health and fitness app. So, oh, um, really, okay, yeah. So a little bit of history with this as well is when they had it in, in the beta form of the SDK, um, I had some, uh, loner Lumia 1520s, uh, from Nokia that um, had this in, uh, SDK enabled on them. And um, they had a, another app at the time, I believe it was called uh, the motion monitor. Mm-hmm. And that was basically, you know, a prototype of a Fitbit re- replacement app. And um, it was really cool at the time. You could definitely tell it was in, in beta, but um, they've really made a, a lot of improvements to uh, the SDK itself um, at a low level. What it does is it allows, because um, a lot of these are dual and quad core processors, it allows them to just run on one of the processors and um, just keep all the rest of the hardware at a bare minimum. So you're just sipping on the energy, but still be able to track whatever you need to gain the information that you need. Yeah, I turned on the the pedometer on my 1520 a while ago, and uh, I compared that to my Fitbit. And it actually, I think, Carl, you said, you know, don't expect it to be very accurate. Um, but I've been pleasantly surprised. It's, it is sort of inaccurate, but it's inaccurate both ways. So sometimes it, you know, over tracks my steps uh, by, you know, a certain percentage. And then later in the day, it'll under track by the, sort of the same percentage. So it, it's kind of auto correcting. So yeah. at, at the end of the day, whenever I check it against my Fitbit, it's actually been pretty darn good. Yeah. And I was warning you that based upon, you know, I had the, the beta hardware. Okay. And, um, you obviously have a a production version, so it's good to see that, that they've made some really good refinements in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. It works pretty darn good. Well, that's pretty cool. It says that I've already downloaded this app. I just, I don't have it installed on my current phone. So I'm going to have to try that now with my 1520. I must have it on my 1020. Good. And and you do need the Lumia Cyan update for that to be enabled in, in, in these new apps. Okay. So the production version will only be, uh, on the Lumia Cyan. Okay. I got you. Okay. So, uh, you can reach us at uh, feedback at MS dev show, or, uh, what you can do is if you are looking at a particular episode on our website, you can actually leave a comment right on the episode page. If you want to send us a message, go ahead and do that. And then, uh, Eric, what do you want to plug today? How do we find you? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, 
I'm on Twitter at Eric D. Boyd. Uh, my blog personally is ericdboyd.com. If you're mm-hmm. curious at all about ResponsiveX, that's responsivex.com. And I think that's probably it. You could probably find that those pathways will connect you to everything else. So okay, it should be good. Yeah, we're going to get a, is there a URL for your book? We'll, uh, we'll put that in the show notes if you have something. You know, I should probably create a bit.ly or something, but. uh, I found it on Amazon. Is that right if I give it there? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Yeah. So we'll include that in the show notes too. So you can find me at ytechie.com. You can also find me on Twitter. It's twitter.com slash ytechie. And I'm at wpdevguy.com and also at Twitter or at Carl Schweitzer on Twitter. I'm sorry. Well, at Twitter would be pretty, uh, that'd be pretty pretty epic. (laughs) (laughs) You should go out there and see if it's taken. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. It was great having you on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. 